0: Today I'd like to welcome to the PodMD studio, Dr. Jason Pace. Dr. Jason Pace is an experienced psychiatrist who established and practices at Sydney TMS, an innovative clinic providing treatment for treatment-resistant depression where other treatments don't seem to be working. TMS is short for Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation. After graduating from the University of UNSW in 1996, Dr. Pace founded the Hills Clinic Private Hospital in Kellyville in 2010, which included one of the first private youth mental health inpatient programs in New South Wales. In 2014, Dr. Pace launched Sydney TMS after travelling to America and visiting several TMS clinics in the US. At that time, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS for short, was virtually not heard of in Australia. Jason now operates four TMS clinic locations across Sydney and practices at all four, offering extensive experience in TMS treatment. Today we'll be discussing the topic of treatment-resistant depression. This podcast is brought to you by OneCloud Voice and Data, helping business to connect. We do hope you enjoy this podcast, but please remember that the advice here is of a general nature and is not intended as specific advice about a given patient. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the doctor, not PodMD. If you do have a patient on whom you require specific advice, then please seek advice from a colleague with appropriate expertise in that area. Jason, thanks for talking with us on PodMD today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Today, we'll be discussing the topic of treatment-resistant depression. Jason, can you give us a brief overview on treatment-resistant depression?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I think there are a few different criteria that you'll come across, but I think mostly um, people agree that treatment-resistant depression would be when someone's had adequate trials of at least two treatments uh, for the depression and they're still not feeling any better or they're only getting a partial response. They're certainly not reaching a a remission. They're not remitting significantly in their symptoms. So it's important to have that in mind because... Studies would suggest that if you've had two antidepressant treatments or you've had two sort of robust treatments of of, of treatment for depression and you're not getting their response, the chances of a third or a fourth antidepressant treatment working is very unlikely. So you need to really stop and think at that point, you know, what other factors here that might be stopping someone getting better, or what else do I need to consider? So I guess the sort of things you should be looking at are you know, contributing factors, you know, what are the stresses that are contributing to this depression? Do we need to address those? Do I have the correct diagnosis? Is there anything else going on additionally that maybe I'm, I need to be considering? Does someone have a, a physical illness, for example, like do they have an underactive thyroid or something like that that might be also contributing to their depression not improving? Do they have a sleep apnea, for example? Um, other treatments, you know, that need to be considered. So, if you think that you know you're pretty much on the money with depression and there's nothing else really going on that you can't exclude, you know, you need to consider changing your the, the treatment approach. We need to look at second line treatments. We look at look at either augmenting the medications with some mood stabilizers or look at something like TMS. So, it's, it's a, I guess, the next stage of treatment needs to be considered. You can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And for some of those things, you're going to to engage with a specialist service to do that as well. So some some of these things are going to sort of take you out of sort of what your sort of comfort level is and maybe be asking for help from someone else to help you with that.
0: So what do GPs need to consider when dealing with treatment resistant depression or TRD? Sure,
1: well, as I said, um, the diagnosis is probably the key thing for them to consider. So I guess reviewing the symptoms you've looked at maybe going back and seeing if there's any gap in the information you have about this patient that might sort of fill out the picture a little bit more uh have a think about whether you know you're sitting with someone who's got unipolar depression or bipolar depression because if you um i guess most people are thinking that they're treating someone with unipolar depression but if there's someone with a bipolar affective disorder that might have this sort of more pendulum sort of moods disorder where they go from mania to depression um, those patients don't respond so well, don't respond so well to the conventional treatments. So, in fact, they may find that the antidepressants actually make them feel worse. So, you may get a a sort a, of a, a sign of this if you've had if you get a history of say mania or or hypomania or elevated mood, but that may not be obvious, um, particularly in younger patients. They may not get a manic episode or hypermanic episode until their thirties. So, if you're seeing someone in their twenties, for example, or early thirties you may not get that, that history. So you need to look at other things that may be characteristic of a bipolar illness. The two things I would recommend you look at is ask about energy levels. Because, you know, the other thing which is very common with bipolar patients is they have a very significant shift in their energy levels that go along with the depression. So they often feel extremely lethargic, much more than maybe a regular uh, patient with, with depression. The other thing which you may find is what we call sort of atypical symptoms. So, Typically someone with depression, for example, will tend to sort of be off their food and reduce their appetite. they'll tend to have reduced sleep as well. but with people with bipolar disorder, their depression can be sometimes not always but can be sort of the reverse of that. so they can tend to overeat or oversleep when they when they're depressed. So there can just be slightly different to sort of the symptoms which we not quite uh, which is not typical of what we typically would see and there may be some signs that someone might be suffering more of a bipolar illness and that you may not be going to be doing so well with the SSRIs, for example, and may need to introduce mood stabilizers a bit earlier on the piece. The other diagnosis to keep an eye on is, you know, what psychological uh, aspects to their personality might be hindering their improvement? Do they have some sort of personality disorder that's really making it difficult for them to, to relate to other people? Do they have a, a neurotypical disorder? Do they have sort of autism or do they have ADHD or other things that might be also contributing to their, so, you know, a secondary sort of maybe diagnosis, which could be actually the primary diagnosis, it could be the main reason why they're getting depressed, is because they've got this other condition uh, neurologically that's really st- making them struggle in functioning with life and keeps wearing them down. So comorbid mental illness is really important, and then comorbid uh, mental uh, medical illnesses. So things like sleep apnea is very common in, in older patients. It's important, and I get a lot of sleep studies done on my patients. Endocrine conditions, hematological conditions, things that other that may be sort of being masked by the depression, but you know it's worthwhile to do a full sort of workup, uh, organic workup to make sure there's nothing else going on. Things like Oncological conditions, cardiac conditions sometimes can present with with depression. You know, things like um, thyroid conditions, endocrine conditions, diabetes. A lot of these things can sometimes present as the first, firstly, with, with depressive symptoms. And then you look a bit deeper and you find other things going on. And then finally, you know, what are the, what are the factors that continue to to irritate this depression and, and stop it from getting better? Is there a, a chronic work condition? Is there a person getting bullied at work? Or is there a person getting sort of bullied or harassed at school? Or is there a really bad relationship at home? Is, you know, Is the person's daughter really sick? Or is there something else going on in the dynamics of the family that might be contributing? And I guess until that thing gets addressed, it may be really hard to get a good outcome for your depression. So these are sort of other things that you might want to consider, I guess, if you've got someone who's really not responding the way they should be responding or you expect them to respond.
0: What different treatment approaches do you need to have when dealing with TRD? So
1: initially things start off much the same way. You would start on a antidepressant like you typically would be comfortable using. And um, I guess when you get to the point where... Um, you've used a lot of these, you'll start getting a sense that some people just don't respond so well to these. So we expect about 70% of patients to have a good response. Um, so by response, the definition of that really is that you get a 50% reduction in the severity of symptoms. But a response doesn't equate to a remission. So the re- the remission rates or a full recovery is much less. So we expect about sort of 30 to 40% of patients to get a re- to remission. So you want to, I guess, start to think about that and, and, and how to capture that. So again, using things like screening tools can be really helpful for you to decide whether someone's just getting better or they need a bit more work done to them. I think uh, uh, it's, it's really key because if you do find that you're only going to get partial response and you, then you're not optimizing maybe the treatments, you're not maybe increasing the medication dose a bit further along or not offering other support, you may not quite get there and you may develop a treatment of depression where it could have been avoided. So I guess the the, the approach I would have is to just really monitor very carefully what the symptoms are and how they're tracking and whether they're improving completely or whether they're only partially improving. The second approach you need to have is to think about um, how much time you you give medication and what doses you use. So you don't sort of just start on a a starting dose of medication and not adjust it. It You may require to do some fine tuning of the treatment. Um, The intensity of the treatment as well. Like if they're seeing a psychologist say once a month you may decide to increase that to fortnightly, or encourage them to see the psychologist more regularly. Um, the approach to the psycho that psychologist might have might be not the right approach. Maybe you, after talking to the patient, you realise they're actually not really getting what what's going on in the, in the sessions with the psychologist. So, you know, things like changing things around, not expecting that the first line of treatments that you 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 put in place are going to be the right ones. And particularly with a psychologist, you know, it's a, a lot's got to do with the chemistry between the patient and the psychologist. So you may think that. They're getting on really well, but you might find out from asking more questions that maybe they're just not a gelling, they're not gelling together, and you might need to find someone else for that person to see. And then, so augmenting with you know and optimizing, I guess, is the things you want to try and do. You want to optimize the the, the, the medications, the dose, give it enough time to work, optimize the psychological support, make sure the right type of psychological support being delivered by the right person. So, and and if not working, if you've tried all those things and you've tried them once or twice. Then having a totally different sort of switch and rethink about what your approach needs to be and maybe trying something quite different to what you've been doing already
0: i see and so how do you optimize medication trials
1: so you i guess initially start with a starting dose Um, the key thing in medication is to start pretty slow and to make sure someone tolerates and you've got buy-in from the patient make sure they're not developing any significant side effects And the best way to do that is to go really slowly and often either a half dose or a full dose of the starting dose can be, if you know someone's quite sensitive to medication, you might want to start really slowly. And uh, after a few weeks, get them in, just see how they're tolerating the medication and, and just set some realistic expectation from the patient. Tell them it's going to take a good four or six weeks for the medications to work. So they're not expecting that within a week they're going to feel any different. So if you don't say that, often people, are, they'll try the medication for two weeks and they say, it didn't work, stop taking it and won't come back and see you. So you need to sort of you know set a, a framework that they, they can follow and understand what to expect. But the first key is to get them on something they can tolerate that doesn't cause them too much side effects, and then increase the dose gradually um, to a therapeutic dose that you're sort of comfortable with. And that might be you know one tablet of the initial tablet, it may be going up to two, sometimes even three, uh, uh times the dose of the initial starting dose. And giving each step a good four or six weeks to sort of optimize, to see what the full effect of that of that treatment has before you go any further. Uh, I'd strongly recommend just doing one thing at a time as well. I think it gets really confusing if you start to sort of add a second medication quickly or or do multiple changes, but then it becomes really hard to track what's actually worked and what's not worked. So having a systemic approach to this, going gradually and just telling the patients the whole time what to expect and what you're looking for, uh, and tracking this all the time by doing some questionnaires to monitor the symptoms is really important. After that, you know, if you're still not getting, if you're getting a partial response, you get a sense that something's happening, but you're not quite getting the, the results you want, then you want to maybe add a mood stabilizer or augmenting agent at that point. And that will tip, maybe hopefully tip them over to get the last little bit of improvement that they're looking for. Okay. And always thinking about the psychological aspects as well. So, are we are we adding in, you know, a psychologist? Are we adding in a counselor? What else are we doing to try and optimize them? They, you know, so other things other than medications can also optimize medication effect, even though it's not medications themselves that are doing that. So, other things, for example, that can augment medication effect is, is using the medication at the right time of the day. So, make sure you you know when you're using the medications when they should be used, whether it should be morning medication or nighttime medication. And what sort of things can minimise their side effects? So having them with food, not having them with food, you know, does exercise sort of help in the morning, that sort of thing. So just sort of understand and give some instructions as to how to use the medications to get the best out of them as well. And if you're not sure, you know, ask someone who maybe uses these medications a lot more about what, how they approach these medications.
0: Jason, if you've tried two antidepressants and still don't get a response, what next?
1: For this, I'll just start by mentioning there's a study which if anyone's interested they should look up it's called the STAR D study and the STAR D study was uh one of the largest studies on the de- depression that was done back in 2006 and it's still referred to because it's still a, quite a pivotal study in in psychiatry it enrolled about 4000 patients and it was a multi-center trial all around the world and it was a naturalistic study it was basically looking at clinicians on the ground doing what they would normally do was GPs and specialists just using medications it wasn't a pharmaceutical sponsored study and it wasn't a controlled by taking people out if they sort of had other things going on so unfortunately what this study did show the big take-home message was that the medications aren't as good as what the you know the companies told us they were and so there was and there was increased uh side effects reported in this study but also one of the one of the other things it told us was that there's not one medication is better than another there was no distinguishable difference between any use of antidepressants. It was very much an individual response. You couldn't say that a, you know an SNRI was a better than an SSRI and a tricyclic was better. There was really no discernible difference between the difference. There wasn't a ranking of power for these medications. The other thing it told us was that once you have had adequate trials of at least two antidepressants, the chances of response to a third or fourth were very unlikely. And even though this is general practice and psychiatric practice for many, many years and still is for many people, it just simply doesn't get borne out in the studies that this is an effective way of treating depression. And so I guess the big take home message is if you've tried two antidepressants and you feel like you've optimized them, you've given them enough time to work, you've used them at the right dose and you've used them in conjunction with some psychological treatment and you're still not getting the results, you just don't keep doing the same thing. You need to either go to a move to a second line treatment. And second line treatments. The guidelines, I guess, in Australia and for most big colleges around the world would be to either use augmenting agents like a mood stabiliser or to look at something like TMS as the next, the next line treatment. So you need to do something different. You can't keep doing the same thing. And I guess a second or a third line treatment might be even ECT or electroconvulsive therapy.
0: So what's the difference between TMS and ECT.
1: So ECT um, is a procedure that you have to be hospitalized for. That's the first thing to say. It's, it requires you having treatment um, at least typically three times a week. Usually they do it on, with a day gap in between. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, typically it's delivered. And it's done in most uh, teaching hospitals and most large hospitals around the world, including Australia. So it's a very commonly used condition uh, treatment. And it uses electricity, basically uses electrical current, that's delivered to the brain and the aim of the treatment is to cause a global effect. So the whole brain is going to get sort of lit up with ECT and it's going to cause you having a seizure or an epileptic sort of activity in the brain. So to, to minimize the um, the danger associated with that, you're going to give someone an anesthetic and you're going to put them to sleep and you're going to give them a muscle relaxant so they're not sort of convulsing in the bed and they're not sort of breaking bones and chipping teeth and so on. So you're going to put someone to sleep for a few minutes. Typically it's about sort of in somewhere between two and five minutes. It's a very short period of time. And then once they've had the the, um, the seizure, you're monitoring the seizure. You, you're making sure there's a good quality seizure for therapy. And then after that, you're going to have sort of th- th- probably four or five hours of neurological observation. And then you either uh, and then you go back to the ward and rest up. It's going to cause quite a lot of confusion uh, when you're having ECT uh, and cognitive impairment. You're going to sort of not have a lot of memory around that sort of month or so when you're having the treatment. Uh, and typically, having somewhere between nine and twelve treatments, so it's going to take about four or six weeks of hospitalisation to have ECT, and the response rates are very good. So it's 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 sort of I guess the gold standard at the end. It's you know for people who have treatment-resistant depression, we would expect about somewhere between seventy and eighty percent of patients will have a great response with uh, with ECT. TMS is a, a a newer procedure. It's been around for about twenty or thirty years. I mean, ECT has been around since the 50s, right? so that's a very old procedure. So TMS is relatively new. It's only been around for about 20 or 30 years, and it's using magnets to simulate the brain. So we're not using a current straight from the wall. We're using a magnet that that's sort of put, much like an MRI machine, that's put close to the brain, and it pulses. So it turns on and off, on and off, on and off very fast. And so the modern machines will pulse 50 times 50 times a second on and off, and that putting the brain near a magnet that turns on and off uh, is going to cause electrical activity in the brain. So the intrinsic activity of the brain will sort of cause electrical activity, but it's not doing it through putting a current through. It's putting it through in the presence of being a, in a magnetic field. And so this is a, a much safer procedure, It's and it's focused on the particular part of the brain you're trying to stimulate. And ECT um, can do one thing. It can basically just activate the brain. TMS can do one or two things. It can either activate the brain, which is what we use in depression, or it can turn down the brain as well. So there are some conditions where we're actually turning down activity in the brain. And it all depends on how you pulse the brain. So if you slow pulse the brain or you rapidly pulse the brain, you will get a different on and off effect of the brain. But I guess from practically speaking, from the depression point of view, we're actively activating the brain. Your patient's fully awake, they're sitting in an office space, in an in in outpatient sort of setting. Um, the treatment itself takes just a few minutes. So most people will have a half-hour appointment. They might have some treatment and then go back to work or go back to school or go back to doing their everyday. They can drive to the session, drive home. They won't feel significantly different at all. So rather than being a sort of a procedure was going to take quite a few hours and it's going to be quite uh, sedating and kind of cause you sort of a lot of cognitive impairment, TMS is going to be quite... Sort of, uh, you know, you're going to feel pretty much the same when you walk out of the office. It's typically done, you know, between three, three and ten sessions a week. You can do quite a lot of TMS because it can it's quite well tolerated, and you're going to do a course of about thirty to thirty five sessions. So it's going to take you anywhere between three to ten weeks, depending on how you
0: space those sessions out. Jason, can a GP refer a patient for TMS?
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So the the Medicare rebates that came out for TMS in Australia in 2021. Uh, allows GPs to refer directly for TMS. Um, what's required at, at the other end is that the um, the TMS clinic has a psychiatrist who will do the assessment for the GP to see if they're suitable for TMS and go through any exclusion criteria that they may have. So essentially, you know, referring for TMS is like referring for a psychiatric assessment. Uh, and then from there, if the psychiatrist at the clinic thinks it's, they're suitable, they go ahead to progress with TMS. So as a GP, you don't need to be an expert in TMS to refer, I guess you need to, you need to identify that someone's got treatment-resistant depression, that you've tried a few different medications, and then I guess you leave it up to the psychiatrist to work out whether they're appropriate. So the sort of things that may not make them appropriate, for example, if they have a cochlear implant if they have metal in their brain, Uh, if they're, at the moment, if they're under 18, you know, if they've had a history of seizures, there might not be, or a head injury recently. So there's a few things that the psychiatrist has to sort out. And typically at our clinic, about 60% of patients who get referred to us from GPs and psychiatrists will proceed to have TMS and 40% don't. And um, for those 40% who don't, it may be that you know, when I assess someone, I might think they could have their treatment optimized a bit better before we proceed to TMS. So maybe the GPs have started someone on some medication, increased the dose, and I might think it might be worth just trying to tweak that a little bit more first. So I might get back to, to the GP. So let's try this first, and then if they're still not right, maybe come back to us in a month's time or we can have another look at the, t- the TMS. So we can help optimise the treatment to make sure that they've had two optimal treatments of, of treatment before we progress
0: to TMS. So when should a GP refer to mental health specialists?
1: So I, I guess um, there's two types of mental health specialists we can consider. Uh, as far as, uh, as referring to a psychologist, I think you should be thinking about referring to a psychologist very early on in the piece. I think certainly within a session or two of seeing someone with depression, if you think they're in the mild to moderate range, I think a psychologist can really help you support that patient identifying any stress, any external factors that can be sort of psychologically dealt with. Uh, So I think at the same time, you're thinking of sort of starting some medication you probably should be also thinking about referring to a psychologist for you know the you know I think Medicare gives us quite a lot of sessions with psychologists to sort of support that process and I think doing that early would be really useful as far as managing medications I think GPS would be very adequately managing medications for quite a few months to give two optimal trials of medications. I think if you've been through a couple of different medication trials, Certainly sort of two or three months into the piece, if you're still not getting where you want to be, I think I'd be thinking about referring to a psychiatrist. Keep in mind it's going to take a while to see a psychiatrist, to get an appointment to see a psychiatrist. So I think if you start the process early, uh, look, it, there's nothing wrong with, say, booking to see a psychiatrist in too much time, and in too much time the patient gets better and he just cancels the appointment. That's absolutely fine. You know, I think At least you put some things in place to have them sort of tracking in the right way. Certainly as a GP, you need to be thinking that, you know, if this person is come to see me today, that I need to try and get them out of this out of this depression in the next six months. It's really key that, that we don't prolong this episode. So I think about two or three months into the process, I'd be thinking if we're still not where we want to be, we'd be worthwhile looking at a psychiatrist referral or a TMS referral at that point, I think.
0: I see. So Jason, um, what role does the GP play in the treatment of TRD?
1: Yeah, so the, the GP is um, pretty key in this role because I think apart from doing the initial management of, treatment resistant and making sure they've had adequate trials of uh, a few different medications and refer them to a psychologist, I think even if you do refer someone to a psychiatrist uh, or TMS down the track, the role the of the GP is not over at that point. You know, The GP is still the main person that the, 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 the patient is going to be seeing for observations, for tracking of symptoms, for support on a pre regular basis. If you say if you're referring someone to a psychiatrist, the chances are the psychiatrist going to maybe see them every you know six weeks, every two months, maybe every three months, and they're going to really rely on the GP to manage things in between. So, I think the best relationship is where you've got a psychiatrist who sort of you know implements some some things, some recommendations, and then refers back to the GP, and the GPs can actively monitor th- how things are going. Now. You know, if the psychiatrist says, look, I'll see you in three months, but the GP feels like you know the, the plan is not working, it's support for the GP to maybe you know, be recontacted that psychiatrist and say, look, you know, we've started to initiate that plan. It's not working. Can we please get you to see so-and-so a bit earlier than what we had planned? So without that, I mean, you know, no plan, doesn't matter if it comes from a psychiatrist or a GP, no plan is always going to work. So if you've started a process, for example, the psychiatrist started a mood stabilizer, started lithium or epilim, and within a week, it's pretty obvious that that lithium or the ephedrine is just not tolerated. You know, you don't want to wait three months to see the psychiatrist again. You know, you want the GP to be able to be on top of that, and to facilitate an earlier review, for example. Okay. the whole time I think also you know just touching in and making sure the patients aware of what the instructions for the psychiatrist are you know, and make sure that they're sort of keeping an eye on things like non-medication things, like we're doing some exercise, we're we sleeping okay, we're we eating okay, we're we not drinking too much, all the other sort of stuff that goes along with treating depression. It's important to sort of touch base quite regularly with the, with a the patient, because they're going to sort of fall off the perch on some of those things and forget about those things if you're not constantly reminding them of that. And, and also, you know, every couple of weeks, just getting out a questionnaire, a screening tool, just see where the symptoms are. Just tracking the monitoring and the progress is really important for the GP to be doing as well.
0: Thanks for your time here today, Jason, in the PodMD studio. To sum up for us, could you please identify the three key take-home messages from today's podcast on basic depression treatment?
1: Yeah, so I guess the first thing is to identify that whether you are an excellent GP at managing depression or whether you are average or whether you're not that good, doesn't matter. I mean, you're going to find that about 50% of patients that you, you look after with depression are going to probably end up being treatment resistant in some degree. So this is not a failure on your part. This is just the, the nature of how the illness is. And expecting that and be monitoring for that and be understanding what that means and, and what that means to your treatment is really important. The second thing is this thinking about referring on to specialist services, you know, so psychologists pretty early on and psychiatrists within two or three months if you're not getting where you want to be, to not slow down the process of recovery is really, really important. You know, not every GP is gonna be comfortable using mood stabilizers and, and second line treatments. And so making sure you have access to that for your patient you know, early on and thinking about the delay in getting to see that person uh, is really important. And thirdly, just use monitoring tools. I think it's really important to find a tool that you're comfortable with, you understand. And I talk a lot about PHQ or the patient health questionnaire. It's a really simple one that we use in our practice. And it's a simple language that patients can understand. Having something like that to track your progress is, uh, I think, f- adds a lot more effectiveness to your treatment than just simply asking a few questions. Uh, these questions are very effective. you can be taken home, brought back the next day or you know a week later. They don't have to take up a whole bunch of your time in front of the patient, but they can really help you track how patients are going in a more accurate way.
0: Thanks again for your time and the insights you've provided. They've been invaluable.
1: Thank you.